is The Disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm not here with my co-host, Lee. Hi, I'm not here with Peter. And I'm also not here with Nuclear Norm. What's up? Topical. Relevant. Yeah. Current. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and you're joining us for a Tragedy Tuesday, our mini episodes about disasters that usually aren't so many. And I actually have no idea what today's disaster is about because it's brought to you by Nuclear Norm. Yay! Before we start that, I'm just going to do what I always do, which is to give you the spiel about telling everybody you know about this podcast. If you like what you hear, tell them about the podcast. If you don't like what you hear, also tell them. You know, tell people what to do, right? <laughs> Your taste isn't... Well, do tell them what to do. Tell them to listen, but don't tell them what to like or not. You know what? Forget everything I just said and just say, listen to This is a Disaster. <laughs> You're looking Despite right at the everything you've heard. That was so awesome. Far. You looked at your phone and you looked at me like I was an idiot. It was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> the next best thing to do is to subscribe wherever you listen and to leave a review. I think Apple Podcasts is probably the best place, but anywhere you listen is super helpful. If you want to follow us on social media at this disaster pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, that is also great because you can keep up with what we're doing. You can also check out our website where all of this information is presented in one great readable place at <clears throat> thisdisasterpod.com. Finally, you can check out our patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod. We're getting closer and closer to that goal where we're going to be generating brand new content, which I think we're pretty excited about. And one last thing before we dive in, we're going to do a little bit of listener feedback. And this time we're hearkening back to the Typhoid Mary episode that Gary hosted. Yeah. So I asked a question following that. Uh, was it fair for Mary Mallon to go down in history as Typhoid Mary? We talked about that quite a bit. Uh, so the first answer was probably not, and the poo demands may have been a bit much, <laughs> which is fair because she got asked for her poo a lot more than anyone should. You know what I mean? I feel like it should yeah. maybe come up once, maybe twice in your life. A stool sample. Perhaps, Perhaps. if really necessary. Turd haps. There's another answer, and I'm pretty sure I know who wrote this one. Yes, period. <laughs> I, I don't know who Gee. that could have been. And that, that person is currently laughing. <laughs> and then finally no and to think she inspired a marvel comic book character which i didn't know and i still don't really know that much about maybe we should look into i didn't that. know that either i assumed fork girl because <laughs> her superpower is chasing people out of her house with a fork uh, on uh, that topic we recently yep. went to that fried chicken place called mary brown's yep or mary yep. brown yep. Uh, which is like a canadian chain and then it happened to be the name that Typhoid Mary took as an alias. Yeah, that's right? pretty cool, actually. Uh, we saw that right before sick? the uh, whole world went to hell. Basically, oh, cool. we the last time I left my house was to see the Invisible Man with uh, Nuclear Norm and our buddy John. <laughs> and we went to Mary Brown's for some nice. great chicken. It was really good. Mm. Uh, and then the world ended, and I mm. haven't been out of my house since. That would be your last memory of the outside. Enjoy it. Anyway, uh, that's enough of me talking Nuclear Norm, I'm going to let you take it away. So in like a couple of the older episodes that I was on, I, I yep. did my best to try to mention distances in both kilometers and miles. Because you're courteous. Yes, because I'm courteous. But there's a reason <laughs> for that. And it's that conversion between metric and imperial is a pain in the ass and has caused several disasters in the past. Okay. But before that, okay. let's go way, way back to the okay. French Revolution. <laughs> 1789. It's like you know what podcast you're on. <laughs> <laughs> so 1789, the French Revolution occurred. Yep. <laughs> I guess it could just yep. occur. There are many reasons, but it was to overthrow the monarchy 
and reform society under the ideals of liberal democracy and, and laws and civil rights and rationality. Eh, friggin' monarchy. A- along with this came uh, scientific enlightenment, and that encouraged cooperation, working between scientists, not just French scientists, but scientists all around Europe at the time, <laughs> which would okay. be the, the the center of the world. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. So, so in order to facilitate scientific cooperation, you needed a standardization for measurement. Mm-hmm. And so every region at the time had its own sort of colloquial measurement units and these were non-exact things like the weight of a handful of sand or or the length of a hand or a length of someone's stride right Uh, right in a practical sense that that's really easy like oh it's 14 steps that way (laughs) right but in terms of cheating out your farmer and saying like oh no i took 12 steps that way and that's the size of your farm so i'm putting my post here also what if you're talking to a child uh yeah yeah, that too what if uh danny devito shows up like (laughs) this is bullshit (laughs) exactly uh it's the king's stride though Uh, (laughs) oh fair enough okay oh of course the the academy of sciences established measurement standards based on mathematical and natural ratios and this was like part of their rational units of measurement. Okay. And from this yeah. came the metric system. All right. Hey. They needed a measure of distance that's kind of like on the order of a, a human body um, that's like a foot or a, an arm's length. So they came up with the meter. Okay. And at the time, that was defined as one ten millionth the distance from the equator to the North Pole. Okay. That seems reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because like, that's about the length of your arms reach at the time. Okay. Yeah. We have yeah, much better sense, definitions of it now, but they wanted something <laughs> yeah. very like easy ratio. So one ten million. So extreme. Like <laughs> first we gotta measure that. Well that sucked. <laughs> but at least we... I think it might have been an S come <laughs> covered in snow like I know what a meter is. Are you happy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's what a meter is for the non metric people. Um, it's been redefined but, multiple times based off of more physical means, not just like the distance that you walk from the, the North Pole, but uh, it's about that that distance. For reference, a centimeter is one one hundredth of a meter. So that's like small. You guys know that. News to me, but true. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's how we measure distance. Uh, volume okay. in the metric system is measured with liters. Mm-hmm. So a liter is defined as 1,000 cubic <laughs> centimeters. The length of here to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Just as, it's as long as you can hold your breath, the, the amount that you displace. <laughs> and a kilogram, which is our mass, mm-hmm. is defined as the mass of one liter of water. Nice. Uh, so that, that that's a very generic explanation of how the original metric system was defined. Hey, Norm, that's pretty neat and tidy. The whole world must use this measurement system, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Oh, good. Well, thanks for coming on, Norm. Yeah, well, so if you want to help us... No, okay, go ahead. <laughs> a, a, a fun note, though, the French Republican calendar was also developed at this time, which was a 10-day week, huh. and it eliminated Sundays literally for the purpose of reducing the church's power. So they did not have a, a seventh day being oh. Sunday Whoa. because That's they were cool. getting Actually. completely secularized. And uh, obviously they did not stick with the 10 day calendar, 10 no. day week oh, calendar. The neat freak person that needs to have order in my life in me really likes the idea of like a 10 day week. Oh yeah. And like a 10 hour day, <laughs> 10 day month. They were they like, cause the intention of the, the metric system is everything is a multiple of 10 okay. to convert. So like they wanted to have a 10 day week, but the year doesn't evenly divide into that. Yeah. And like a, a 10 hour day is hard to have. Yeah, friggin' uh, earth. Too bad. Yeah. You'd be like 122 by now. <laughs> I'm getting up there. 
Do you like my math, Peter? <laughs> that was, yeah, you nailed, nailed it. Nailed it, buddy. So as Napoleon conquered most of Europe, he actually spread the metric system amongst all of the colonies and the, the countries that they took over. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, Britain was France's main rival. And for reference from the year 1100 until... 1789, the French Revolution, yeah. there were no fewer than 27 wars between Britain and France. <laughs> Can you Jesus. even call them separate wars at that point? They, they didn't even have names. They were just like called like the war of this, yeah, whatever. <laughs> there were a lot of wars. Okay. So the Brits hated the French. You don't say. Shocking Weird. news, I know. So they wanted to retain their traditional imperial units. Uh-huh. And these were things like inches, yards, miles, ounces, and gallons. Mm-hmm. And this is where the divide came in. So, so ten inches in a in a yard, I'm sure. Oh, I've actually got no? these listed in the end of my notes, but it doesn't really oh, matter. Okay, <laughs> I've already forgotten them all. How long is a furlong? No clue. It might be three chains, or there's one three furlongs <laughs> in a you, chain. Oh, wow, you actually know. <laughs> so there's something like that. Yeah. yeah. So the the British former colony and that includes United States and Canada, mm-hmm. they also stuck with the imperial system. Yeah. Okay. But through the 1900s, most countries adopted the metric system because it was just really efficient Yeah, mm. and it really helped in globalization. So all of mainland Europe d- adopted yep. it and then there was this right. divide between people that use metric and people that use imperial. Right. But by 1965, the United Kingdom metricated, which means they converted to metric to match the rest of Europe. They still use their traditional units, so they still use some uh, colloquial units and imperial units, but they're basically fully metric now. Okay. Right. As of 1965. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hold on. But don't aren't there speed limits in miles still? Uh, well, they, they yeah. understand the concept of miles. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know what their speed limits Smart are. Uh, I think it is, I think they do adhere <laughs> yeah. to miles. Yeah. yeah. One of the sort of infuriating thing or I think they might have changed but I know that a lot of the announcers in Formula One talk about how fast the cars are going in miles Mm. because I think like the posted speed limits in the UK are in miles well even on that that British car show Grand Tour or Top top Gear Top Gear Top Gear they're always talking about miles on there apparently I always thought yeah. they were just being courteous to Americans because miles per hour sounds cool. It does. They're also not the kind of people to be courteous to yeah. Americans. <laughs> They've got a great episode about not being courteous to Americans in the South. It actually is really expensive to change all the, the signs, which we'll get to in a minute. Right. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Basically, at this point, there are, every country was converting to metric. Yep. This is about 1965. In 1971, <laughs> the Unitas Congress released a report called A Metric America, a decision whose time has come. Okay. <laughs> and it actually recommended converting to metric within the next 10 years for America. Okay. Okay. And this bill was eventually worded that it was a voluntary conversion to metric. Don't do that. And uh, you can see how that probably went out. Uh, (laughs) So most people weren't really in favor of that because converting the way you measure everything in your life has no impact on the average person. Right. So there's no incentive to do this. Like if you were to change to some other measurement today, You'd be like, oh, that's a pain. I don't want to do that. I like to think it wouldn't be, but I still tell everyone that I'm 6'1", not 182 yeah, centimeters. me too. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> me too, and I'm that height too, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. We see eye to eye here. And in the uh, 70s, oh, Peter. there was also the fear that <laughs> Americans would be losing jobs to metric countries oh, uh, if they converted to okay. metric, and that's one of the pushes against it. It always comes back to... <laughs> They took our jobs. Yep. Okay. <laughs> okay, but fair enough. D- despite this public resistance, big businesses such as Ford and IBM and GM, they had switched to metric in the 60s and 70s. They had switched to metric years ago. 
Okay. The main thing was that it was actually way more efficient to work in metric because of the standardization of parts and that type of stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah fair enough. So the United States already is kind of metric. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And this is something that I, I learned and maybe American viewers can confirm. Apparently, kids are actually taught metric units in school along with their imperial units. So, like, okay. they know what a meter is. They just know it's a different thing. <laughs> Uh, And it's a different way of measuring. But most people don't need to use these types of units after they finish school. So they kind of just forget. Okay. And then they never use them again. (laughs) Uh, Unless you're in the military or a field of science or anything like that where they all use metric units. (laughs) Right. As if they're they're native, so it's it's kind of interesting because I've never even thought about this. Yeah. Whenever I've worked with anyone in the states through university or in my job, they all fully understand metric units, and I never even realize that oh, they're from a country that doesn't use metric because <laughs> they basically do in order to work with the rest of the world. Right. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. And like in the medicine industry in America, like all the medicines done in grams, and uh, the food industry is in metric. Do you know what they call a two liter of Coke in America? It's going to be something super intuitive. Yeah, it's a two liter. Like they literally call them two liters. A two liter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even, they're metric and they don't even know it. It's like you, you think they'd have like, like a, 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 a different word for them, like a pumpkin, but nope, it's a two liter of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's random. Canada has historical yep. ties to Britain, which you may know. Okay, yep. And yeah, we used really? imperial units just like Britain did. Oh, okay. Okay. So we followed in Britain's footsteps where they metrificated in. 1965. In 1970, our liberal prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, father of our Mm -hmm. current prime minister, uh, he created the mandate to switch to metric and this would to take place slowly over the decade of the 70s. Okay. Right. And this involved mandatory changes to everything. So, like, they had to change all the speed limit signs from miles per hour to kilometers per hour. (laughs) And they had to change all the cars, speedometers to have kilometers and miles. They had okay. to change food labels and thermometers, and they had to change oh. gas pumps from gallons to liters. I bet that went smoothly. Yeah, when you put it that way, it's kind of an ordeal. Yeah, it yeah. was really expensive. And so, obviously, politically, people were totally against this. Right. Yep. Because it would cost money, even <laughs> though it cost the government money, but businesses save money right. yeah, <laughs> by switching well. to metric. There were actually protests, <laughs> most of them from conservatives, not, not, not pointing any fingers, but they would cite <laughs> personal freedoms, <laughs> freedom to measure, and you know the, the, the cost of, of converting to metric. In, freedom in, to measure? Yeah. Oh. I'm sorry. In, to me- in 1979, okay. 37 progressive conservative MPs. So, yeah. yes, in Canada, we had a party called the Progressive Conservatives. <laughs> so the Progressive Conservatives opened a freedom to measure gas station <laughs> that okay. uh, served gas in both liters <laughs> and gallons. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on really yeah <sighs> like this is one of those things where it's just you know when you say you're going to be on the wrong side of history on this one <laughs> this is one of those things looking now you're like come on <laughs> come on man <laughs> also freedom you're still allowed to measure however you want yeah, oh no exactly. the government is telling you to use metric units well you you won't go to jail. Exactly. I don't get a fine every time I pick up a 45-pound weight. Yeah, sure thing, Tommy. <laughs> oh, wow. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay. Yeah, okay. So today, uh, Canada is officially metric. Okay. Uh, but we, because that we converted in sort of the 70s and 80s, we still use feet and inches, as Peter was saying. Like, we, we yep. measure our height 
in, in feet and inches. We measure our weight in pounds. Yeah. yeah. But we otherwise use kilometers and liters and uh, Celsius for temperature. Mm-hmm. I, I've never figured out the conversion from Celsius to Fahrenheit. Like, I know it's linear, <laughs> yeah. but I can never remember what it is. I don't know. It makes it's, no sense to me. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> so conversion, as we've kind of been talking about, it's a huge pain, regardless of what side you're on. Let's just say they said, hey, Peter, tomorrow you've got to use all Imperial units. Nah. You'd be like, that's a pain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't want to do it. But we did it anyway. That, that's all just preamble. On the 23rd of July, 1983, mm-hmm. Air Canada mm-hmm. Flight 143 departed Montreal Dorval International Airport, which is now Trudeau Airport, right. oh, yeah. with a stop off in Ottawa. On its way Ooh. to Edmonton, Alberta. Ooh, okay. Specific dates and places. Uh, now we know we're, we're serious. <laughs> we know what this means. Yeah, so exactly this is about in. a 3,000 kilometer trip, which is yep. 1,860 miles, mm-hmm. which is about a four and a half hour flight. Okay. And for those of the people that don't really know Canadian geography, this is about the distance of New York City to Denver, Colorado, or yep. this distance Barcelona to Moscow, flight distances. Okay. Yeah, okay. fair enough. Yeah, took yeah, me real long cool. time to figure that out. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I had to look at like, okay, I got to find two cities that are about oh, the yeah, same distance yeah. as right. to Montreal and Edmonton. <laughs> right. The airplane was a Boeing seven sixty seven, and this was a new yeah. designed aircraft from nineteen eighty one. It's okay. a wide body twin engine jet airliner, but this particular unit for the flight on July twenty third, nineteen eighty three was the 47th plane that was coming off of the production line, and it was only four months old. So it was okay. a brand new plane. Nice. Wow, okay. The captain of the, sh- the plane was Bob Pearson, age 48, mm-hmm. and his first officer was Maurice Cantal, age mm-hmm. 36. We're learning names now. So Pearson was a very experienced pilot. He had yeah. 15,000 flight hours. All right. Oh, wow. Uh, and Cantal himself was also a very experienced pilot with 7,000 flight hours. Fair mm-hmm. enough. So they know what they were doing. You're, they're basking in that new plane smell. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're experienced pilots. And just as a complete sidebar, one of my buddies is recently became a pilot with Air Canada yeah. after oh, cool. you know 10 years of flying small aircraft. So that is like... Right. Like being a commercial airplane pilot for a big airline is the pinnacle of that field, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So these guys have the uh, they're like the top of the top of the pilots, right? The brass ring yeah. grabbed it. So the, the previous day during a routine check of, of this particular plane with a different crew, the cockpit yeah. fuel indicator went blank. Oh. So that was weird. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's this computer called the fuel quality indicator system, mm-hmm. and it's basically two systems that independently calculate the fuel level, okay. but it was actually malfunctioning. And this was actually hmm. a common error with the 767s. <laughs> that doesn't seem like an yeah. error that should be common. No. Yeah. So the technician was actually able to fix the error by deactivating one of the two systems by pulling a circuit okay. breaker. And then mm-hmm. it started reading normally. So <laughs> okay. he wrote down in the book that he tagged out the circuit breaker and then right. left. Okay. I fixed it. I pulled a part out of the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, he's like, uh, I pulled Hold out the circuit breaker. I'll just write it down. All right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, brushes his hands off and leaves. (laughs) So on the day of the flight, the plane was handed over to the new flight crew, which was helmed by Pearson and Cantal. The new flight technician noted on this entry log that the circuit breaker had been pulled, but he was kind of confused about it. So he put it back in (laughs) and then it reset the fuel gauge and they all went blank. So he just redid the problem that the guy had fixed. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Some idiot took out this circuit breaker, better put it back. (laughs) So he's like, oh, there's a problem with the computer. Uh, Got no problem. I figured it out. Yep. 
But the repair parts to fix this computer couldn't actually be delivered until the next day. Okay. And before this technician could actually pull out the circuit breaker again, he actually got distracted by the arrival of the fueling crew, and he forgot okay. to pull out the circuit breaker. Ugh. So the, the, the gauge was still malfunctioning, and he left it malfunctioning. That seems like a what? very important thing to forget. Yeah. What do you mean distracted by the arrival of a fuel? Is he a goldfish? <laughs> Look at those guys. You got to give this guy a little of a break. If you're in the middle of doing something and someone calls your name, hey, we're the fuel crew. You, you, you got to give, give him some slack here. <laughs> He's like, sorry. Yeah. Man, I was I was doing something. What was it? I, I lo- just love the image that Lee just painted. <laughs> Like, distracted by the fuel crew. They didn't even say anything to him. He just looked out the window, and he's like, <laughs> what are those guys doing? Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go get a sandwich. <laughs> okay, so aircraft regulations actually state that it is not legal to fly with blank fuel gauges because you don't know how much fuel you have. Good rule. Seems like a good regulation. Yeah. So, so in the event, though, that the fuel gauge fails, there's actually a manual method to measure the fuel in the plane, and it's called the float stick method. Basically, there's these sticks that are in the wings Mm-hmm. of the airplane which is where the fuel is okay. and you can tell how much fuel is in them by how much they're floating oh. okay so it's what it sounds like <laughs> due to a series of miscommunications captain mm-hmm. pearson was actually under the impression that the plane had already flown to its current position with the fuel gauges blank because it wasn't noted that the guy had pulled it in out the, the breaker <sighs> so he just right. saw that the breaker was in it was noted that it was screwed up and it was off so he's like oh well this is how the plane was, so I guess it must have come here like this. You guys got to write this shit down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's like, look, I can't read the fuel in the cockpit, but we can measure the fuel sticks. I know how much fuel there is. Okay. I've done this a few times before. <laughs> I've flown yeah. a plane before. I've got yeah. 15,000 hours. Exactly. <laughs> you point it up, yeah. you get it. <laughs> so this is where it comes back. These new 767s were the first to be calibrated in metric units, that's liters and kilograms, instead of gallons and pounds, as was all the rest of Air Canada's fleet at the time. (laughs) I think I know where this is going. Oh, no. (laughs) It's going down. So Pearson calculated that he needed 22,300 kilograms of fuel. Mm, kilograms. That's 49,200 pounds. Okay. Yep. okay. You measure the fuel by mass in terms of figuring out how much yeah. you need to, to get to your distance. So he, he needed 22,000 okay, kilograms. Yeah. The float stick measured that the tank had 7,682 liters in the tank. Okay. So what the crew needs to do is they need to convert that volume into a mass and then refill the difference. Right. All previous yeah. flights prior to this airplane actually had a three-person flight crew that included mm-hmm. a flight engineer. And that was essentially someone that was on board to do all of these calculations. But okay. since uh-huh. the 767s had all these new computers and things, it actually eliminated the need for the, the flight engineer. Okay. And this is why like, you don't see a three-person cockpit crew anymore. Because it's all okay. like all those calculations that right, right. are done by the people. Like, like that's a, a computer now. Because okay, computers do it. Uh, yeah. Unless yeah. you pull an important part of the computer out of the dashboard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so normally, jet fuel's mass to volume is 0.08 kilograms per liter. Okay. The ground crew, however, instead converted using the imperial conversion of 1.77 pounds per liter. So as a result of this miscalculation, instead of filling up with 20,000 liters of fuel that they required, they instead filled 4,900. So in total, they had about half of the fuel they needed to get to their (sighs) location. Oh, no. The captain and the crew 
double and triple yeah. check the calculations. Yeah. But since they were given the incorrect conversion factor, the numbers yeah. just worked out. Right. Oh, boy. That's almost the worst. If <laughs> yeah. they made a mistake, they make a mistake. But yeah. this way, they're confident that they're right. Yeah, the right. guy tells you, oh, uh, just multiply by 1.77, dude. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I could do that. I'm a pilot. <laughs> just... Yeah. Fill it until it sprays your feet. Done. Yeah, this is a this is like a <laughs> computer science thing, right? Like bad input will give you yeah. bad output. The the equation well, just yeah. garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. But Lee's got a point. I mean, that's how I fill my car. I don't even look <laughs> at the pump. I just keep pumping until my shoes smell like gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The plane took off at 5:48 p.m. Eastern time with 61 passengers. When it landed in Ottawa, which was like its its layover on the way from Montreal, yeah. the float stick was measured again and the same conversion error occurred and they <sighs> believed that they were still good. <laughs> So it took off again on its way to Edmonton yeah. at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time with the flight cruising at 41,000 feet, uh-huh. 12,500 meters mm-hmm. yeah. over Red Lake, Ontario, near the Manitoba border. Mini sidebar. Yep. In the aviation field, they still use feet for altitude all around the world. That's just like a historical thing, like like knots and all this stuff. They People still use feet all the time. That's why okay. the, the pilot's like, ah, we're at 40,000 feet. Well, it's kind of like, I think they still use nautical miles, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is okay. 1.8 kilometers. <laughs> I know that because I looked it up. You'll never forget it. So they're, they're cruising at 41,000 feet. And then in the cockpit, an aircraft warning light suddenly appears that says, low fuel pressure. Mm-hmm. The co-pilot, Stefan Quintal, checked the 767 handbook, yeah. believing that this problem was something with the fuel pumps but that yeah. they should actually be okay despite this fuel pressure warning. Oh, okay. But they decide to divert to Winnipeg anyway as a precaution. Right. So they alert air traffic control in Winnipeg that they've got this warning and they'll want to be safe, so they want to land at Winnipeg. Okay. Okay. Good. So Pearson and Kintel update the flight computer with a new heading for Winnipeg. And as they do that, several more warning lights suddenly turn on. Okay. First warning yeah. light is left engine stopped. Oh, I'm <laughs> that's a hell of a warning. Yeah. yeah you don't want to see that. <laughs> so, so that's not necessarily a problem because uh-huh. all these planes are designed to be able to land with one engine. Because right. Okay. Like, yeah. Like they can do that. So yeah. not a problem. Mm-hmm. So now they're, they're going to Winnipeg and like, Oh, we're, this is like serious now where mm-hmm. our left engines out. So we definitely have to go to Winnipeg. Yeah. At this point, the flight computer lets out a loud bong sound. <laughs> <laughs> that neither pilot had ever heard before. <laughs> no good. That's that's not what you want. Um, no. Followed by the warning: all engines out. Oh. Okay. You're then in the a cockpit glider. goes completely black. Uh, okay. Fuck. Good. <clears throat> good. Can, can you imagine? Oh, I can't. Like the cockpit going blank, and then all you hear is maybe the wind whistling <laughs> past <laughs> the windows. Maybe maybe a rattle. Especially since this is like a yeah. brand new airplane with like all the computers. In it. It's the first one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're driving on this highway and your car turns off. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's an airplane. <laughs> okay, good. Good, good, good. Pearson is quoted as saying, quote, oh, fuck, end quote. <laughs> I feel like I that's relate. pretty restrained. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so the engines of, of the airplane actually generate all the electricity for the, the instruments because they're, they're oh, okay. basically turbines, which we talked about yeah, in turbines. energy generation. Yeah, Chernobyl episode 2021. It also <laughs> generates the hydraulic pressure that's used to steer the flaps of the plane. 
So okay. the fact that the engines are oh. going also allow you to steer the plane. Oh, boy. Huh. So with no engines, it means you've got no systems. Mm-hmm. And worst of all, you can't steer your plane because you've got no hydraulics. Hmm. It is like being in a dead car. Yeah. Just you know, nothing works. Yeah. So at this point, they can do one thing. They can release the Ram Air Turbine, okay. which you talked about hey, in your last episode. Ram pressure. Look yeah. at that. I know some things. It's actually an extra turbine that the air blows into it and it generates a small amount of hydraulic pressure. So you can at least steer your plane and have a minimal amount of instruments running. Okay, fair enough. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, they are scrambling through the manual looking for how to fly the plane with no engines. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to fault them for not having looked that up before. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You'll be shocked to hear never came that there was nothing... <laughs> There was nothing in the manual about how to fly a plane with no engines because <laughs> Boeing's like, uh, that's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, what are you saying? The planes are crap? I don't think so. Oh, my. Yeah, huh? Yeah, huh? So they sent a mayday to Winnipeg Air Traffic Control advising for the closest possible runway, making yeah. it clear they have no engines. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so air traffic controller at Winnipeg suggests, okay, the two closest landing strips are Winnipeg Airport and Gimli Airport, okay. Okay. which is also in Manitoba. So at this point, they realize that there's actually no way they're going to be able to get to Winnipeg, and they're going to have yes. to go to Gimli. Yeah, okay. Okay. Stroke of luck. Captain Pearson, mm-hmm. along with having 15,000 flight hours as a in yeah. an airplane, yeah. is also yeah. an experienced glider pilot and glider instructor. Wow. That is extremely fortunate. <laughs> so a glider... Unfortunately, though, is a 230 kilogram, about 500 pounds, single pilot aircraft that's finely balanced and weighted with huge wings to specifically glide. Yeah. A 767 Uh fully loaded is 120,000 kilograms, 265,000 pounds. Sounds translatable. That can, it can technically glide, but it's not meant to run without power. Oh, yeah. Right. Can it glide in the same way that anything that was once propelled through the air (laughs) always glides for a bit? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay. So there's no uh, vertical speed indicator, so they don't know how fast they're falling out of the air. Um, But they know their altitude, and they know how fast they're moving because the air traffic controller is looking at them on the radar, Uh but their transponder is out, so it doesn't know the, the absolute position, but the aircraft controller took a ruler and measured yeah. the distance that they were traveling on the radar and told oh, them the distance they traveled. Oh, and God. so in his head, Captain Pearson estimated the their rate of falling mm-hmm. based off of that information. Mm-hmm. And he determined that they, are, they weren't going to be able to reach Winnipeg and they had to go to Gimli. All right. Right. So they still had, radi- they still had radio contact. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I thought you were going to say that uh, they estimated their rate of descent by how fast the air traffic controller was saying, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit, 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 oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, the w- tr- controller wouldn't have known their rate of descent anyway because they're, they're not okay. getting in free information. Yeah, right. It's just yeah, it's... a black rock flying through the air. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so first officer Cantel was mm-hmm. formerly in the Royal Canadian Air Force, hey. and he was a pilot stationed at Gimli Air Force Base. Wow. Okay. And, and so <laughs> like, he's like, hey, I know a place that we could, like, Gimli's perfect land. It's got an airstrip that'll be uh, abandoned because yeah. Gimli Air Force Base was shut down. So there will be right. no one there. <sighs> no perfect. One to kill. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so yeah. they're, they're coming in too high and too fast. 
So Pearson decides to execute a maneuver called a forward slip. Okay. This is a situation where all airplane pilots learn this maneuver because it's it's meant to land smaller aircraft. So anyone who starts okay. off with a small plane learns the forward slip. And it's a weird thing where you dip the plane's nose downwards and then you bank it into the wind. But then you turn oh, okay. your rudder so that instead of turning, you turn your rudder in the opposite direction that the plane would turn and it keeps it going straight Uh okay it's hard to describe without looking at it but basically your plane is like landing sideways but coming in straight a badass maneuver is basically what you're saying okay every every pilot should know how to do this Uh, yeah okay fair enough yeah so like he he did this maneuver as he approached the 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 strip because he's like oh we're going in really really fast as mentioned, Gimli Air Force Base was shut down in the 70s, mm-hmm. but it wasn't abandoned. Okay. In July 1983, it became Gimli Motorsport Park. <laughs> oh. A civilian park with go-karts, a drag racing strip, and a motocross circuit, and a golf course. Did I mention Amazing. it was also Family Day Race Weekend at the airstrip, <laughs> and it was packed with people and cars and kids playing on the airstrip. No, I don't think you mentioned that. No, <laughs> no, no you, you, you skipped over that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Normally, jet engines are really loud. That's why you don't want to live near an airport. Uh, uh-huh. But with both engines out, this plane is dead silent. <laughs> oh, shit. I didn't even think of that. So the people on the airstrip see this silent jet coming in sideways <laughs> and they run for their lives. Yeah, good response on their part. Wow, yeah. scratching their heads. Yeah, so right before the plane touches down, he straightens yeah. it out because it's coming yeah. in sideways, straightens it out so that it'll it'll slide straight. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then it skidded along the tracks and it blew out its tires. Okay. Okay. So the front landing gear buckles and the nose of the plane crashes into the pavement. Ooh, okay. This actually helps because the additional friction of the plane scraping slows right. the plane down a lot. It's like an anchor. And right. it slid for an additional 880 meters, 2,900 feet, and it stopped right in front of some kids that were playing. <laughs> I have this image of them standing on a soccer pitch, just like motionless. Yeah, just not moving. Yeah. Screeches to a halt, like right in front of them. And yeah, then one okay. of the kid like reaches out and touches the nose of the plane. Yeah. <laughs> there actually is a CBC documentary about this where they interview okay. the kid. Uh, obviously, he's an adult now about uh, yeah, uh, right. this specific day. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. Like, we didn't know what was going on. We just sort of stared at it. <laughs> because this was like a, an active racetrack, Several workers were actually ready with handheld fire extinguishers to put out the fire on the airplane. Wow. <laughs> also very fortunate. Yeah. There was a lot working in their favor for this yeah. disaster. Yeah. So this whole thing from the first error until crash landing yeah. was 17 minutes. Holy Holy. And the passengers and even the, the pilots kind of didn't know yeah. what was going on because they didn't realize it was the fuel. They just thought right. for like... So the engines have both died because they right, still, right. at this point, thought the fuel was good. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there were no major injuries to anyone on the plane or on the ground, for that matter, which is actually kind of surprising. That yes. is amazing. I can't uh, believe that. It's amazing you're not talking about a fiery wreck. Air Canada tried to blame Captain Pearson for this, mm-hmm. and he was demoted for six months, and Cantel uh, uh-huh. was suspended for two weeks for allowing this accident to happen. Well, They appealed this, however, and yeah. the safety board actually reported that it was Air Canada's management's responsibility for this, and that it was actually corporate and equipment deficiencies. So, for example, Air Canada failed to properly reallocate the fuel calibration task from the mm-hmm. flight engineer 
to someone else. Yeah. They failed to make it clear how to do these conversions mm-hmm. uh, for, for the fuel. Yeah. And the fact that the broken computer wasn't able to be fixed right away. Yeah. yeah. That was another thing. They needed to have spare parts on hand. Well, sure. It's not like the pilot is standing at the side of the plane filling it up at the gas station. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, so they won their appeals. And in 1985, both pilots were awarded the first ever Federation Aeronautique Internationale Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship. Nice. That's a little more like it. Well deserved. Yeah. And also, like another interesting thing is several flight crews attempted this landing in simulators after the fact, mm-hmm. and they all yeah. resulted in crashes. Wow. So they nailed it. <laughs> yeah. So like the, the, the Pearson. Pearson, yeah, like the glider pilot. Yeah. Yeah. This plane, like this physical plane, was repaired and actually flew until 2008 when it was retired. Mm-hmm. Okay. In its final flight, it went from Montreal to Tucson, Arizona. And Tucson's where they have the airplane graveyard, which is a pretty cool thing if you just check it out. It's where they retire old airplanes. Okay. This is 2008, and Pearson and Cantel, as well as three flight attendants, were on that final flight to Tucson from Montreal. Wow. So the plane was scrapped in 2014 when no one wanted to buy it for, I don't know, nostalgia reasons. <laughs> right, yeah. No. Pearson didn't buy it, put it in his backyard. Kintel was promoted to captain in 1989. However, he died in 2015 at the age of 68. No. Pearson retired in 1995 and I believe is still alive now. Wow. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I don't know. So this and incident was known as the Gimli Glider. And uh, <laughs> it put Gimli on the map. And they, that's like one of their big things. And there's like a, there's a Canadian stamp about the Gimli Glider. And it's oh. a, 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 a very interesting event in Canadian history. That is awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Jeez. I haven't been on an airplane since I started researching yeah. this. <laughs> right. But you're always going to be like asking the flight crew, you guys know how to convert metric to imperial, right? And vice versa. Metric. Ever heard of it? Yeah. But but like pull any circuit boards out of this Modern airplanes. And this this is kind of like completely sidebar. Modern airplanes, two engine airplanes used to not be able to fly over the Atlantic. Okay. Because if there was an engine failure, they they have nowhere to divert to. Right. Oh, right. So that's why this is in the past. That's why you would always have to use three engine airplanes. But then with the more modern airplanes... The engine reliability has been proven to be so good yeah. that they can fly across uh, Atlantic with just two engines. Wow. Huh. I feel like after hearing this story, I'm always going to be like, you you got any more engines you can put on that plane? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, like cross Atlantic, like you don't have to fly close to any safe areas. Like if you get an engine, you can always divert to Reykjavik and you can fly with one engine. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You're still flying with one engine. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well... <laughs> wow that's a disaster that's a disaster it, it, that's a tragic just, tuesday in fact it is tragic i mean not really because yeah. no one died but well it's okay it's a tragic asterisk tuesday <laughs> yes not I actually feel tragic. like i've heard that <laughs> that event like the gimli glider it sounds familiar i never would have guessed yeah. it would it sounds so jolly and fun <laughs> yeah. right yeah <laughs> come see the gimli glider yeah like an olympic ski jumper that yeah, did right. really well from gimli <laughs> exactly <laughs> yep exactly wow that's awesome so you got you got music for that i do have music i Ooh. very rarely get to use like a quote-unquote jovial song so i'm going to use <laughs> this opportunity true. so my favorite well, it's one of my favorite bands is four years okay. strong they're an american easy core band from worcester massachusetts okay uh this is What's, their explain easy core yeah <laughs> oh it's like uh pop punk but with okay with hardcore vocalings oh neat okay yeah. your friend jake is in an easy core band 
Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to do some research. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Four Years Strong is an American easycore band. Uh, cool, this cool. is from their self-titled album yep. from 2015, and the song is Gravity. Mm. <laughs> Appropriate. It, it's, it's quite jovial. I don't yeah. know like when we're ever going to have a chance to have like a laughable uh, situation. Yeah. And it wasn't funny for those people for that well, 17 yeah. minutes, but it's kind yeah. of a funny yeah, story now but... in Canadian lore. Yeah. Oh, but yeah, everyone on that plane can eat out on that story, right? Yeah. <laughs> or dine out on that story. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. And you heard a bunch of that music just now. So thanks for joining us, Nuclear Norm. You're welcome. <laughs> nuclear Norm is sticking, by the way. I tried to take it away, and people were like, nah, it's nuclear. It's so nuclear. You're, you're, not, you're never Norm again. You're Nuclear Norm forever. Yeah. Got it. <sighs> Thanks for joining us. Thanks for everybody that joined the live stream. And if you want to join the live stream next time, consider going to patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod and becoming a patron. And then you get access to our Discord where we live stream this content. If you want to help us out, one of the best things you can do, possibly at the very top, is to tell a friend to listen to this podcast. Just spread the word. Tell everybody, that if you like what you hear, to tune in. And if you don't like what you hear, get out of here. No, I'm mm. kidding. Don't, don't get out of here. Stay here. <laughs> We'll do, we'll do better if you don't like what you hear. Please, please, we'll do better. <laughs> the next best thing you can do is subscribe if you aren't already and leave a review wherever you listen. That would be fantastic. You can follow us on social medias at This Disaster Pod, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also go to our website. We've got all the information in one place, thisdisasterpod.com. And like I said, our patreon.com slash thisdisasterpod, where if we get a certain number of patrons, we're going to generate some brand new content for you, which we've already got planned, but we're ready to uh, bring that your way. Yes. So enjoy the rest of the quarantine. <laughs> Stay socially isolated, people. Yeah, Stay socially please. isolated. If this episode does come out after everything's blown over, then uh, you're getting a little bit of a time capsule. And if it comes out at the end of the world, then spin a slice. Yes. Hey, hey, hey want to play a game? <laughs> want to guess sure. how long this is going to last until we're going to oh. be... Because this yes. is going to be in the future, right? That's right, actually. Yeah, yeah, we can see if we were right. Okay, let me pull up a calendar here. I don't need a calendar. I know what day it is. Uh -huh. I'm calling okay. one month from okay. March 12th. So I'm going to call April 12th. I'm calling April 12th right now. You're doing, you're doing April 12th? Okay. Yep. Lee, you got an idea? <clears throat> I'm going to go uh, May 1st. Going mm -hmm. a little longer. Okay. I'm, I'm going to do one better than both of you. And I'm going to say June 1st. Okay. And I'm not, I, I don't necessarily mean like the full on stay at home at all costs. But I don't think we're going to be in the clear until like June 1st. Okay. So we got yeah. optimistic, we'll realistic, we'll pessimistic. <laughs> it's all covered. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look, we know the name of the podcast and yeah. <laughs> we can't be too optimistic. No. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in and be sure to join us for our next major disaster. Bye. Bye. Peace. Another <laughs> timely reference. <laughs>